One of the very first things that I had to think about in my process of becoming a minister was my theology of evil. Why does evil happen in this world? Are human beings naturally depraved, necessitating some greater than human force to drive us toward goodness? Are human beings inherently good, falling towards evil because of some temptation of sin, the brokenness of relationships, or some damage to our psyche or our soul? Perhaps it's more complicated than that. Faced with an either-or decision between a depressing doctrine of original sin and a naive belief in human goodness, most theologically liberal people choose the latter. We look back at the early Unitarian belief espoused by William Ellery Channing, among others, that each of us has a spark of the divine within us and think that spark must mean inherent goodness, right? Faced with such a choice, most of us readily and uncritically embrace the classic liberal teaching of the unimpeded progress of human society. 19th century Unitarian minister James Freeman Clark famously called it the progress of mankind onward and upward forever. It's even the New York State motto, Excelsior, ever upward. In making that choice, however, we are being hopelessly naive. We choose to ignore how easy it is to make choices for bad when we reject the theology that inherent evilness is attached to. And then, when evil happens, it takes us by surprise. A few days after September 11, 2001, I was asked by the committee evaluating my fitness for the ministry what my theology of evil was. I should have simply answered, it's complicated. Truth be told, on September 20, 2001, I didn't much have a theology of evil anymore. Having subscribed to the classic liberal theology, theological insistence in the inherent goodness of humanity, I could not explain what I had witnessed just a few days before. In that moment, I was speechless. It was not until four years later that I gave the committee my answer, an answer that is still evolving to this day. Like most either-or decisions that we are faced with, I believe we should be looking perhaps for the both-and solution in the matter of human goodness or depravity. Perhaps what is framed as a simple matter of one or the other is really a little bit of each. David Brooks, in his New York Times column this week, tried to apply the age-old theological question to the disturbing case of the American soldier who murdered 17 Afghan civilians in cold blood. Brooks wrote, Any of us would be shocked if someone we knew and admired killed children. But these days, it's especially hard to think through these situations because of the worldview that prevails in our culture. According to this view, most people are naturally good because nature is good. He continued, This worldview gives us an easy conscience because we don't have to contemplate the evil in ourselves. But when somebody who seems mostly good does something completely awful, we're rendered mute or confused. But of course, he writes, it happens all the time. That's because even people who contain reservoirs of compassion and neighborliness 
also possess a latent potential to commit murder. Brooks brings us back to the notion of the inherent depravity of humanity, and he embraces the theology of original sin in all of its problematic glory. In centuries past, he wrote, most people would have been less shocked by the homicidal eruptions of formerly good men. That's because people in those centuries grew up with a worldview that put sinfulness at the center of human personality. In searching for an answer to how seemingly good people can do awful, horrible, evil things, David Brooks takes us to the only other available choice, that each of us has a core of sinfulness, and then concludes that maybe we are each a mixture of virtue and depravity, and that our task as humans is to, he says, struggle daily to strengthen the good and resist the evil policing small transgressions to prevent larger ones. Now, in the small amount of space allotted to an op-ed column, David Brooks doesn't give us much explanation for how he gets to that conclusion, but I'm not interested today in literary critique. Rather, I think with this conclusion, he begins to tease out the complex nature of humanity in ways that neither Calvin nor Channing neither ancient Catholicism nor American liberalism could successfully answer with their either-or thinking. There's a famous story, often attributed to the legends and oral tradition of the Cherokee people, but whose origin is probably pretty recent and Euro-American to boot. Regardless of the provenance of the story, it makes an interesting theological statement, so I thought I'd tell it to you. An elder is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. He continued, the other is good. He is joy, peace, hope, pride, love, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside of you and inside every other person, too. Now the grandson thought about it for a minute and asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old man simply replied, the one you feed. Perhaps it's the case that each of us has the seeds of both good and evil within us, and that those seeds are nourished by different things in our lives, resulting in different outcomes for different people. It's the tendency when talking about evil to go directly to events of great horror, things that we can point to and all agree on their evil nature as starting places. Even my own theology of evil was shaken not by everyday bits of badness, but by the acts of terrorists against an entire nation. Instead of looking at murderers and rapists and terrorists and dictators and saying, evil, we would do better to look at the smaller things, even though they're harder, because they're in our own lives. To the unkind words we spoke to a loved one last night, to the push we gave our younger brother last week. 
The Reverend Judith Meyer says, Apply enough pressure to any of us and something ugly will surface. Evil, she continues, isn't some malevolent power floating around in the universe waiting to penetrate some unsuspecting soul. We do it all by ourselves. This brings us, of course, to the example of P.T. Barnum, about whom we heard earlier. Equal parts huckster and entertainer, Barnum was an exploiter of people and and animals, and also an ardent advocate for the abolition of slavery. He enticed people to pay their hard-earned money to see the Fiji mermaid and gave a lot of that money away to educational, religious, and healthcare institutions. Did he do a lot of good things? Yes. Was he a good person? It's complicated. Did he do a lot of bad things? Yes. Was he an evil person? Complicated. Was he an unusual human being? No more than any of us, I think. But if each of us has the wolves of both good and evil in us, if each of us contains the capacity for evil as much as the capacity for good, then each of us must take up the question of how it is we choose to feed the wolf of goodness, of compassion, of mercy. I think that the key lies in recognizing our interdependence. That tenet asserted most clearly in the seventh principle of Unitarian Universalism, that we affirm and promote the interdependent web of all creation of which we are a part. Apart from the environmental implications of that principle, which I'll come back to in future weeks, seeing all of existence as connected demands of us an accountability to every other being on the planet. It demands of us that we develop and use our compassion in ways that improve the lot of our fellow creatures on this earth, that we add goodness to our world. In recognizing our connection to all other beings, we end our isolation from them and eliminate the possibility that we can make decisions based solely on our narrow self-interest or the separatist ideology of a small sect of people. Feeding the wolf of goodness requires connection, the opposite of separation. And separation has often been tied to notions of sin and evil. Theologians have for many, many years connected the notions of sin and separation, positing that those things that bring about evil, sins, separate us from God. According to 20th century theologian Paul Tillich, Separation is an aspect of the experience of everyone. To be in the state of sin, he wrote, is to be in the state of separation. And separation is threefold. There is separation among individual lives, separation of man from himself, and separation of all people from the ground of being. This threefold separation, he continued, constitutes the state of everything that exists. It is a universal fact. It is the fate of every life. Most theologians throughout history, though, identify separation as the effect of sin. We are separated from one another. We are separated from God because we have made choices for evil, because we have committed sins. The Hebrew scriptures in the book of Isaiah tells us that this is the progression. Sin causes separation. There it is written, Your iniquities have separated you from your God, 
Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's the other way around. Maybe it's separation that causes us to do bad things. The Reverend Victoria Safford writes, Evil is the capacity within and among us to break sacred bonds with our own souls, with one another, and with the holy. Further, it is the willingness to excuse or justify this damage, to deny it, or even to call it virtue. The soil in which it flourishes is a rich compost of ignorance, arrogance, fear, and delusion, mostly self-delusion, all mingled with the sparkling dust of our original human being. We resist and overcome evil by reinforcing our togetherness, our fundamental and inescapable unity with all of humanity, with all of creation. That then becomes the role of the religious community in seeking to combat evil in our world. Rather than, as so many religions do, work to separate people into good and bad, saved and damned, right and wrong, if we really and truly want to dedicate ourselves to goodness, we need to be spreading the good news of connection, the good news of unity, the good news of interdependence. The Reverend Patrick O'Neill describes the balance between good and evil as a seesaw. He sees it tending ever so slightly toward the good. I might disagree, saying it's pretty well balanced to begin with, but I agree with his conclusion that the job of the church is to put the few stubborn ounces of our weight on the side of goodness and to press down for all we're worth. So let's push. Let's push deep within our own souls, understanding that peace in our hearts is the first step toward goodness everywhere. Let's push down on the side of goodness in our families, understanding that those whose connection to us is obvious cannot be taken for granted if we truly mean to work for goodness in our world. Let's push down as hard as we can on the side of good in our communities, bending them towards good by demanding that all people be treated with dignity and respect, that all people have equal opportunity, that all people deserve the same rights because all people are connected to us. Let us put all of our weight, our few stubborn ounces, on the side of goodness in our nation and in our world, that we might be examples to those who would separate us, that we cannot and will not be separated from our fellow humans. We cannot and will not be separated on the basis of our national origin, our native language, on the basis of our religious beliefs or our ethnicity, on the basis of the color of our skin or the person whom we love. P.T. Barnum once stood before the Connecticut legislature as they debated the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution and said, A human soul that God has created and Christ died for is not to be trifled with. It may tenant the body of a Chinaman, a Turk, an Arab, or a Hottentot, but it is still an immortal spirit. He was a complicated man. We are all complicated people. And yet, if from the depths of his universalism, 
he knew and proclaimed that all people were created equal and was willing to fight for it in the halls of government. We, the modern-day inheritors of that tradition, can as well. May it be so.